Hi everybody, it's Duncan Green here with the uh, weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. I'm in Papua New Guinea um, <coughs> on a uh, fascinating but exhausting trip uh, to a project I'm advising on on community engagement here. Amazing country, uh, really interesting work, many blogs to follow I'm sure, and one of my atrocious uh, video vlogs is already up on my YouTube site if you're interested. Um, but I'll leave that for later uh, until I finish the trip and finished thinking through what all this stuff I'm seeing and talking about means and concentrate on uh, just updating you on the blog which has been a little patchy because of the trip but um, we've got a few posts to, to, walk, to walk through. So first of all uh, links I like, got a couple of those. The first one everybody on Twitter is agonizing about Twitter and Elon Musk. Um, the first thing that uh, I wanted to highlight was just really interesting, this shift that Musk has done, that anybody can buy a verified account. So the, the whole question of verification has become very dubious. You just pay $8 a month and you get a blue tick, which on Twitter means you're you know, legit. And some enterprising activists spotted that and started doing corporate takedowns and other things. So a fake uh, corporate uh, tweet from uh, a fake Eli Lilly pharmaceutical company announced insulin is free now and it knocked 6.8 billion dollars off the Eli Lilly share price in the space of a few hours. So that's pretty extraordinary. Um, second up, uh, uh, I'm getting increasingly obsessed with Adam Sharp who does this amazing thing of um, translating common sayings into different languages and just finding out how bizarre they are. And I've checked on Twitter and as far as I can tell, most of these are true. So um, let's get this show on the road in English is let's pick up our hammers in Bulgarian. Let's saddle the chickens in German. What? Let's go bedbugs. <laughs> the bed's on fire in Finland. On with the butter, Icelandic, and forward with the goat, Flemish, which is just a mind-blowing collection of sayings. Um, thank you, Adam, for this. Uh, there's also a more serious uh, 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 vein, amazing footage from Iran of, of women taking on clerics uh, yeah, in all sorts of uh, locations about whether they have to wear a hijab or not. Uh, some really courageous activism going on there. Next post uh, was a repost which the New Statesman very kindly let me repost from Rebecca Solnit, a writer, historian and activist uh, and co-founder of the Climate Education Project Not Too Late. And her piece was called Why Climate Despair is a Luxury. Those facing flood and fire can't afford to lose hope. Neither should we. When you take on hope, you take on its opposites and opponents. Despair, defeatism, cynicism and pessimism and, I would argue, optimism. What all these enemies of hope have in common is confidence about what is going to happen. A false certainty that excuses inaction. Whether you feel assured that everything is going to hell or will all turn out fine, you are not impelled to act. All these postures undermine participation in political life in ordinary times and in the climate movement in this extraordinary time. They are generally both wrong in their analysis and damaging in their consequences. Not acting is a luxury those in immediate danger do not have and despair is something they cannot afford. But despair is all around us, telling us the problems are insoluble that we are not strong enough, our efforts are in vain, no one really cares and human nature is fundamentally corrupt. Some push their view like evangelists, not merely surrendering to defeat, but campaigning vigorously on its behalf. 
I've encountered a lot of them since I began to talk about hope almost 20 years ago. And uh, I urge you to read the whole piece. It's very, uh, I think, very uh, helpful and reassuring in these difficult times. The second piece is altogether darker, the next piece rather, altogether darker, The Links Between War and Hunger. It's a powerful uh, essay in The Economist earlier in November, stressing a link that is sometimes lost in the coverage of hunger crises. The link to men with guns, as they put it. A few excerpts. Sorry, I've got a runny nose. At first glance, Vladimir Putin has little in common with an Ethiopian foot soldier. One man has palaces and nuclear weapons, the other a shack and an old Kalashnikov. Yet both illustrate a global problem, that food supplies are often disrupted by men with guns. Of the 828 million people who do not get enough food, nearly 60% live in countries racked by conflict. Armed violence is the single greatest obstacle to ending hunger, says the UN's World Food Programme. In normal years, Ukraine is a huge supplier of calories. Last year, it provided 10%, 14% and 47%, respectively, of global exports of wheat, maize and sunflower oil. It usually ships 95% of these through its ports on the Black Sea. Roads, rail and river are dismal alternatives. Ukraine's total exports of grain fell from 5 million tonnes in February to 1.4 million tonnes in March, after Russia invaded. By last month, a deal between Russia and Ukraine on Black Sea food exports allowed 4.2 million tonnes to flow through the Black Sea route alone. Keeping it open is essential. Other rogue regimes have weaponized food even more directly than Russia does. In Mekele, the capital of Tigray, streets are filled with hungry women and children. The price of the local staple, teff, is three times higher than in other parts of Ethiopia. Hundreds of thousands are starving. People ask for food everywhere, says a doctor at the region's main hospital. Tigray is hell on earth, says the head of the Tigray Development Association, an NGO. Global hunger has many causes, from poverty, recently exacerbated by COVID-19, to drought, made more common by climate change. All these are made worse by war. Of the 10 countries with the largest absolute numbers of acutely hungry people, all but Sri Lanka are conflict-riven, and Sri Lanka has seen huge riots. In Somalia, the government is not trying to stop food from reaching citizens, but local terrorists are. Al-Shabaab, a jihadist group linked to Al-Qaeda, controls great swathes of the country. A gentlemanly agreement with aid agencies once allowed at least some aid to cross front lines, says an advisor to Somalia's president, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed. But these days, Al-Shabaab blocks almost all aid from entering its territory. That includes much of Somalia's best farmland which is enduring its worst drought in four decades. Farmers need peace to produce, says David Laborde of FPRI. Where war rages, fields are burned, cattle are slaughtered and farmers are drafted. Armies grab fuel, leaving little to power tractors and irrigation systems. Roads become hazardous. In Congo, where dozens of armed groups plunder and rape, local women might not want to walk five minutes down the road to sell their food, observes Mr Laborde. Elsewhere, conflict has simply brought food production to a halt. In parts of the Sahel, including northern Nigeria and Chad, jihadists terrorise farmers so they will flee to cities and destabilise the government. Afghan farmers have endured many conflicts in recent years. Many were forced off their land by fighting between an elected American-backed government and the Taliban, a jihadist group. Other breadbaskets bread could perhaps export more. This year, Australia had its biggest wheat crop ever, 
and Russia a record summer grain harvest. Meanwhile, America and Europe reported less disastrous harvests harvest than feared. Brazil and India, not usually big wheat exporters, managed to sell some of their crops abroad. All this has helped restrain global prices, though they remain much higher than in 2021. But next year, this mix of lucky weather and damage control looks unlikely to repeat itself. Russia may not see another whopping crop. America and Europe are still getting too little rain. In Argentina, the biggest wheat exporter in the southern hemisphere, drought is forecast to cut the next harvest from 20 million tonnes to 13.7. Floods and a lack of port capacity will make it hard for Australia to export much more. Mr Putin's war also made fertiliser costlier by raising the price of natural gas, a key input. Farmers in rich countries have coped by using old stocks of fertiliser or skipping some applications. Next year they may simply decide to use less. That could hurt yields. Many poorer countries have already run out of fertiliser. In Colombia and Peru, governments have sought to calm rural unrest by subsidising the stuff. Just as violence fosters high food prices, high food prices can foster violence. So far, um, that has happened in 17 countries. The biggest rise has been in poor countries where unrest is up 39% compared with 5% across all countries. Even if the current hunger crisis only lasts for a year, the consequences will be felt far longer. A short spell of malnutrition can stunt young bodies and brains. The World Bank says that the share of 10-year-olds in poor and middle-income countries unable to read a simple text, text has increased from 57% in 2019 to an estimated 70% this year. The pandemic and hunger are probably the main causes. That may be among the worst legacies of Mr Putin's senseless war. Millions of children worldwide will grow up to be less intelligent and thus lead poorer and less productive lives. Even if you don't like the politics of The Economist, I urge you to read it just to see how to write. I think their writing is superb, definitely compared to most people in the aid business, and that's one of the reasons why I like it. Next post, links I liked. And I did a little Twitter poll, because I'm still on Twitter, I just can't face moving. Um, I, I just noticed some annoying millennial verbal tics, so I asked people which were most annoying. Only 50 people voted, it was just a bit of fun. But the winner, clear winner was, I'm not going to lie. Why do people say that? Are we, are we expecting them to lie? No, it's just a stupid, you know, waste of space. Next up, if that makes sense, pretty much the same argument, just takes up airtime. And to be fair, were we expecting you to be unfair? No. So I'm going to turn into Victor Meldrew, a grumpy old British TV character, and just say, bah, bah, what are these people doing? So um, if you've got any other millennial, uh, annoying millennial ticks, do let me know. Back to the serious stuff, fairly serious. <clears throat> just before I came to PNG, I uh, had to go and talk to the uh, something called the 1922 Committee, which is the backbench committee of the Conservative Party in the UK Parliament. They're the people who usually uh, you only hear about when they're chucking out a prime minister, which they've been doing quite regularly recently. But this is, it turns out they've got a foreign policy committee, which I had no idea about. And I just went along to talk to them, partly out of curiosity. And they are discussing, uh, an, uh, they have an inquiry, and the topic is, aid as a concept has fallen into disrepute in recent years, but Britain has always been seen and must always be seen as a force for good in the world. With this in mind, 
What should we seek to do with our aid international engagement system? And here's what I had to say about this. Haven't done this kind of parliamentary gig for a while, but it was pretty much how I remember it. Thinly attended by a few staffers plus some household names, at least in my household, with some kind of power and the confidence to pronounce on the huge range of issues they confront on a daily basis, relying more on their ideological priors and a couple of personal experiences than any close engagement with the evidence. It wasn't exactly Chatham House rule, but I will refrain from naming names, apart from the chair, Giles Watling, who seemed rather open-minded and keen to get some content for a report they will send to the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. It's a much more informal internal party exercise than the set piece of the Parliamentary Development Select Committee, but I have no idea whether it has more or less influence on decision-making. In these kind of events, you try and shape your remarks to the audience, but inevitably they sift through and take the things that fit their priors, while the rest bounces off. It can be quite frustrating and makes you realise why politicians sometimes just repeat the same phrase over and over, so that can't happen. Here are my speaking notes, followed by what I think landed, although I won't know for sure till they write up their report after inter interviewing a few more people. Questioning the premise. So this whole idea that aid is in disarray. Outside the UK and Scandinavian bubble of gloom, things look much more positive. Global aid hit an all-time high of $179 billion in 2021, up 4.4% in real terms from 2020. And this was all some great figures from the uh, OECD, uh, people at the OECD, and I've got links on the blog. They're very nice and very helpful. Even inside the UK, public misperceptions run deep. When asked in surveys, people normally put aid at around 20% of government spending, when the true figure is a tenth of that. When people actually hear how much is spent, more like 2%, they want to increase it. But let's accept the premise. So what is broken about aid and how can it be fixed? So the problems with UK aid, and this was all a discussion about UK aid, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office has lost control of the aid budget, leading to a slush fund mentality in other departments and poor value for money because those departments can raid the aid budget and don't have to account for the quality of their spending. More pounds are now being spent in the UK than on bilateral aid to poor countries and these are estimates by Stefan Durkin at Oxford and Ranil de Sanayaki at, at the Centre for Global Development. Three billion dollars a year is now spent in direct bilateral aid by the UK but four billion dollars is spent within the UK mainly on refugee costs and four billion is channeled via multilateral institutions. Transparency and accountability are massive backward steps since the merger stroke abolition of DFID. In terms of repu reputation, the US has gone from a leader in many areas of development to a global laughing stock. Well, so that's pretty grim. What to do? What are the solutions? Well, aid can work in the enlightened national interest, but only if it's good aid. Second, Restore honesty to what we classify as aid. Stop fudging and using it as a slush fund. Make a proper medium and long-term strategy. Then a quote from Stefan Durkin, budgets are an absolute mess. They no longer serve development nor make any sense for, for, from a value for money point of view. Create really super clear and rigorous lines of accountability for what all the money clusters aid is achieving and get a defined and protected development budget. And support the new development minister, Andrew Mitchell, who was Secretary of State in the, in, when DFID was a separate department. He's come back in. He's like some football manager, you know, being rehired to get the team back out after re relegation, as far as I can see. 
his efforts to rebuild credibility and stop Home Office raiding, which he recently said in Parliament is very much the subject of discussions between the Foreign Office and the Treasury. So what landed? Well, <clears throat> they definitely like the idea that, they, that UK aid needs more transparency and accountability. The question is why they liked it. I suspect it's because it brings more control back home to the UK. They basically don't trust foreigners, as far as I can see, and they want control of every penny. They're even sceptical of lending by the multilaterals like the World Bank. This issue of control went as far as some, it went in some weird directions, including admiration for how China manages its infrastructure investments through the Belt and Road Initiative. Value for money. They still think aid is largely wasted, despite the massive cuts. They talk about flinging money around at the end of the financial year. I'm not sure what, if anything, would change their minds on that. These, these, these uh, uh, ideas are very deeply rooted. And I found the overall anti-aid mindset was pretty depressing, although sometimes they had some funny lines. An outdoor relief system for unemployable public school children was a good one, I thought. It'll be really interesting to read the final report and see uh, what stuck and basically whether I should have gone. Final post I wanted to talk you through was uh, a post uh, which I reposted from Oxfam's Voice, Views and Voices blog, which I urge you to sign up to. And this was to mark the start of this year's 16 days of activism against gender-based violence, which happens every year. Uh, and this was Oxfam's Dana Abed uh, introducing its new report, The Assault of Austerity, How Prevailing Economic Policy Choices Are a Form of Gender-Based Violence. Feminist economists have warned for years that the global economic system is violent towards women and girls. Women in the workplace are too often poorly paid and exploited, denied basic rights such as pensions or maternity leave. Hundreds of millions of women are in informal work that traps them in poverty. This stark gender injustice in the economy combines with patriarchal social norms and laws to keep women impressed and their needs neglected. But today, the situation for women in the global economy looks even more bleak as countries around the world take a hard look at their balance sheets post-pandemic and as we go through the cost of living crisis, most governments are looking to cut services and introduce austerity measures. Their policies too often look set to protect the rich and the elites of society while imposing more economic pain on the marginalised, including women, girls and non-binary people. That's why our new report for this year's 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence highlights another side of gender-based violence, one that is rooted in macroeconomic policies such as austerity. We set out the consequences of the fact that four out of every five governments are now locked into austerity measures, cutting public services such as health, education and social protection, rather than pursuing wealth taxes and windfall taxes. In 2023, 120 countries are planning to further cut their social protection budgets as part of this austerity, despite the fact that the COVID-19 crisis has already cost women around the world at least $800 billion in lost income in 2020, equivalent to more than the combined GDP of 98 countries. The pain of this coming austerity will we show fall more on women, and these cuts will be to services that are already inadequate. Our, our research shows that more than half of governments embarking on austerity already fail their women and girls by failing to provide or barely providing gendered public and social services. These governments are, we argue, treating women and girls as expendable. Then there's some uh, yeah, clear explanation of why the pain of austerity is felt more heavily by women. And I wanted to highlight the, um, the feminist alternative to economic violence. Such austerity cuts are not inevitable. 
governments do have a choice. They can continue to inflict economic violence on women by cutting public services, or they can spare women this pain and instead raise taxes to, on those who can afford it. A progressive wealth tax on the world's millionaires and billionaires could raise almost $1 trillion more than governments are planning to save through cuts in 2023. We set out in our report what we believe is a viable feminist alternative to the economic violence of austerity. This, in this includes 1. Prioritising women and girls in budget designs. Just 2% of what governments spend on defence could end interpersonal gender-based violence in 132 countries. 2. Ensuring women and non-binary people are at the heart of national budgeting and policy making to ensure they work for everyone, not just men. 3. Funding women's rights and grassroots women's organisations, especially in the Global South. 4. Investing in universal healthcare, child and elderly care, education and protection. 5. Generating accurate gender data and analyses to inform economic decisions. Gender-based violence doesn't only happen when women are physically assaulted. Austerity and the policies that rip away funding from the social fabric and systems that women and girls and non-binary people depend upon to survive and thrive is systematic violence too. It is just as dangerous, just as universal and just as problematic for women and girls, leaving them vulnerable, impoverished and marginalised. This year, during the 16 days of activism, we want to raise our voices with our partners across the world and show how writing economic policy can be an act of extraordinary violence how gender-based violence is being inflicted as much by the pen as by the fist. And on that powerful note, I will leave you. Um, this time next week, I'll be in Canberra finishing up my trip. I may not get round to doing one of these, in which case you'll have to wait another fortnight. How will you manage? Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye.